When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Sam Vecini, excellent NBA draft college basketball writer for The Athletic, host of the Game Theory podcast, which is excellent. And as you could guess, he and I go through the draft and some other stuff in really fun detail. We start with the results of the lottery and why we both find it so compelling, and then we talk through some off-season stuff, including uh, going down an Austin Reeves rabbit hole. But then we spend a lot of the time on the top prospects in the draft and talked a fair amount about the players that I've started scouting. I haven't really finished that many yet, um, but lots of great content here. Runs about an hour and a half, so lots of great stuff. And this episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Go to fanduel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. And as I said, podcast runs an hour and a half, so you'll get a lot of Real GM Radio this week. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, it's always good to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this NBA draft. You're catching me at a fun point where we're post-lottery. Almost all of the pro days are done. We only have one more uh, like substantial day of pro days, basically. Uh, tomorrow, this will timestamp this a little bit, I guess, but like tomorrow is the CAA and Clutch Day. So most mm. of these players have all been seen in terms of like the pro days and stuff. We're past all of that, and now we're starting to get into workouts and starting to get into teams actually like, you know, choosing who they want to come into the facility and everything. So it's a really exciting time. It's a really fun time, and I'm really pumped to kind of be able to talk about this with you. It's also a fun time for me because I I got a a little bit ahead of Nate in terms of draft prep, but how I ended up doing things this year is that I ended up doing, in part because I wasn't sure who we want the two of, you know, Nate and I wanted to do full scouts on other than the obvious ones. I've done about what I call a partial scout. So what a partial scout is for me is about a half an hour of half an hour to 45 minutes of unassorted, you know, just like random clips, which is which is how I start with everybody. And then one full game, which is typically against like the best similar position opponent I could find. That's generally what I try to do for the first game. And I so I've done that for most of your top 10. And but that means that I'm not like ready to make definitive pronouncements or anything like that. It was I just did it in a different order this year. It also helps that so many of these guys play the same general position type. So I wanted to have like a rough sense and then that allowed to go into the nitty gritty. But I don't want to start with that. I want to start with the lottery itself. And you always and I'm guessing you're this way, too, like. It's this abstract thing, and you're like, okay, well, who do I want to win the lottery? How do I want to go? And you don't always necessarily game out two, three, four, and everything else like that. But having to sit on it for a week, I think this is one of the more compelling, more variable lottery concoctions that was close to chalky that we could have really seen. I think that's absolutely dead on, and it's in part because... You know, obviously Portland is like an enormous wild card just in the league right now. So so often what you want in terms of like unpredictability and just like wild potential for the draft is 
the idea of teams like kind of in different places in terms of a pure roster build, right? So Mm -hmm. like Portland could go a number of different ways. They could decide, hey, you know what? Like our front office, we just got here last year and we feel like we have very real job security. Like let's just move. We we might get Scoot Henderson at number three. We might be able to pair him with Shaden Sharp. Let's just like move Damian Lillard and fully jumpstart this rebuild, right? Or they might decide that we're taking Scoot no matter what. We think the value is too much or we're taking Brandon Miller, whoever they end up at three. Uh, we think the value is too much and we're a small market team and the best way for small market teams to be able to compete in the NBA is by getting high draft picks. And there is no circumstance where we can move this pick because of that. And Damian Lillard maybe then asks out or they might just flat out say we're going to move the pick. And I think if they try to move this pick, there are a number of different ways that they could go in terms of like maybe you try and trade for a superstar. Maybe you try and trade for a uh you know, down the board, you know, maybe you could do something with Orlando with two lottery picks, like, you know, number three for six, 11 and something else. Right. And then you move six for something, you move 11 for something. And you have this like strong veteran team that gives you a final chance to contend in Damian Lillard's prime. The fact that Portland moved up, I think is, is really what makes this fun. But also like Charlotte is like kind of a wild card just cause they're, it's not that they've been like terrible in terms of evaluation or anything. Like, yeah, they missed on James book Knight and Kai Jones probably, but like they've had some hits. Like I think Bryce McGowan's is probably going to be okay. I think Mark Williams is going to be quite good. Uh, obviously they nailed LaMelo taking him at three. Like they have, they have like a mixed track record, which makes it almost more fun. And then at number four, you have Houston, who is another team that if, reports are to believe to be believed james harden is certainly a potential option there which could like really kickstart their options in terms of trying to win or they just have an immense amount of cap space and they can try and like overpay for someone like austin reeves or somebody like that or they can just continue down this road of building I think that like all of the three teams, what was going to matter is who got two through four in this draft. And I think all of the three teams that got two through four ended up in a really, really interesting space where they could go a number of different directions. Agreed. And there there isn't a clear path for any of them. And one other thing that I'll add into that general conversation is we have this variable of how do the potential trade partners feel about not only these picks, but these picks relative to each other, because like John, our colleague John Hollinger wrote a good piece about how it's awkward for Houston if they're trying to win now. They're trying to move this pick for help for talent because Portland's offering theirs as potentially as well. And yep. so, you, so you have, but but maybe a team doesn't see the four pick as being that much different than the three, or maybe it's the idea of we don't know who's going to get selected. Like you have those questions in place. But the other thing that I want to emphasize now, and this is having done a very preliminary scout and also having heard that the 24 class, and you wrote about this well, doesn't seem particularly strong for now. And things can change oh, a lot. Dan, Dan, Danny. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that 2024 class, my friend. I, I've, I've spent a little bit of this week like trying to like really figure out like how bad that thing might be. It, oh, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the level to which NBA like scouts and executives are worried about that thing like can't really be overstated right now. This was the first year in a, in a long time that the Hoop Summit happened and I didn't go. 
because of the birth of my child. And I felt a lot less sad about that when I heard Shut some... Shut little LaRue, by the way. Yeah. How about very, that? Let's go. Very excited about it. Um, and so I was less sad about missing it. Obviously, would, wouldn't have gone for the world, but that element of it... And But here's the general concept. Even if you weren't the biggest believer in the top the top players in this draft, I think that there's a... a, a a third road for a team, especially Portland, because Portland is in a different place than Houston, where it's not an all or nothing proposition. And what I mean by that is you take the best prospect available, but you also don't rebuild. And you hope that, let's say it's Scoot Henderson. I'm not saying that it will be. You hope that Scoot Henderson becomes very good, but it's not going to be immediate even if it happens. Like, they're, they're, A, there are very few rookies who are, like, really good. B, especially point guards take a while. And Scoot Henderson in particular, I think, could take longer than average, which is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It, it's all about where you end up, not about where you start or how long it takes to get there. But that idea of... Get this player in because if you're Portland, this and and you're trying to win now, like even if that's your focus, your pathway to really, really taking the steps forward, even if it's two, three years from now, is really getting a player in who is better than almost everyone you already have. And yep. that's hard to do through a trick. Like, you know, the, and, and the, the players who are even made available are often flawed. And in order to have the best offer, then you're going to have to typically overpay unless there's some real arbitrage there. And so do, do, do you want to talk about some of those names, by the way, because I, I've really struggled to come up with those names that make sense. Uh, I've really only heard of like even speculatively. I'm not saying that like I've heard this is a possibility at all. I, I've only really heard like one name that I can really even like wrap my head around that could be worth the number three pick. Let's hear. So like a, a lot of people have said the Raptors, right? So like Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi, like possibilities, right? OG Ananobi for one year is on a non-extendable contract is like definitely not worth the number three pick. Agreed. Agreed. Unless the like, I mean, I don't even think that the looser extension rules in the new CBA are probably enough. You could, if you had an understanding, non-binding with Ananobi that you can retain him beyond next season. Then you could have a conversation. Um, but the number three it, pick, like these are these are talented young dudes. And so but but yeah. that's Ananobi particularly is, is in the place where if you get that commitment and I agree with you that if you don't have that, then we're, there isn't really something to talk about here. Then at the bare minimum, that's something you take to the room, you take to the front office and you 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 bat it around like that. You know, it, it gets it reaches to that level. And, and you're right that there aren't that like. The fact of the matter is there aren't players of that ilk that are really available that often in part because it's hard to find them. You know, like the, the they're hard right. to go, you know, like in conceptually, like you think about Desmond Bain, like Desmond Bain's EV is probably higher than a lot of these young guys. But also, you know, there's the not only the the ceiling difference, but there's cost control, you know, that they're they're cheaper. Bain's going to get his big contract and which he deserves. Right. And so you could talk about maybe somebody like that if you were an optimist. And then, like, I mean, if if Jalen Brown were to hit the trade market, like that would be a weird negotiation. But maybe the Celtics are interested in one of the players in this draft. Maybe Brad Stevens has somebody that he really likes. I don't know. And 
We've also seen a number of talented kind of younger players move recently, so they're probably not going to move again. Like Larry Barkin, wonderful year. De'Aaron Fox isn't going anywhere. Halliburton's not going anywhere. Like those sorts of things. So yeah, I think think we're in agreement. I have one name that I wonder if it could actually be like a little bit interesting. Okay. Brandon Ingram. I've two years left. He is extension eligible. That contract is extendable functionally with the 140% rule now. That Pelicans roster is about to get like quite expensive. Um, and, and I've never loved the Ingram Zion fit. So yeah, and like if you think Zion is the guy and you think Ingram is like maybe a little bit less of a great fit for Zion, that's a real conversation to have. And then on top of it, Brandon Ingram has two years and then he's unrestricted. And if he tells you like, hey, look, like, I don't know how comfortable I am here totally. Like I, there's a good chance I test the free agency market in 2025. Like, do you start looking for options like this this is when you would cash in on Brandon Ingram in theory with two years left not with one year left right it is and if you could get the number three overall pick let's say that is Scoot Henderson Scoot Henderson's like an unbelievable fit next to CJ McCollum next to Brandon Ingram theoretically next to Zion Williamson he's perfect as like a transition partner for him and then if you're Portland like you're saying like okay we actually have Brandon Ingram Brandon Ingram can be a star that takes us out of the Damian Lillard era and helps us like transition um within the Damian Lillard era still but like also if you decide to pay Brandon Ingram like long term if you're Port or if you're New Orleans he's going to be a max player like even on like new money I think and then you're talking about probably what uh, would that be like 95 million, something like that for him and Zion combined? A lot. And uh, they already have in- CJ under contract and everything else. So it's yeah, it, it would be it would be a big bill. And they also and we, we don't know how good they are. Exactly. And, and also the challenge Toronto is dealing with us of good young players is that they become properly paid relatively quickly. It's not you. You have this really narrow window with Herb Jones and Jose Alvarado and Dyson right. Daniels, you know, he you know, had a rookie year, so he has a little bit longer. And well, so more than anybody, Trey Murphy, I, sure. I think there's like a non-zero chance. Trey Murphy is like a $30 million a year player. It, very possible. And so then so then you're like, OK, we also need to create wiggle room for that. And and so right. it, it being proactive makes a huge difference. And they will have other guys come off the books like Valanchunas, Larry Nance's contract should be off by then. But yeah, it it's a conversation worth having. I don't know if Portland would have the scratch to do it. It would probably involve sending Simons out in this overall deal, whether it was to New Orleans or elsewhere. But I actually really like the Ingram-Jeremy Grant fit because Ingram doesn't – he's not great at taking on the toughest assignments, but Jeremy Grant could do that. And so they're – and both those guys can do a fair amount with the ball in their hands. If you pair either one of them in specific moments with Lillard, then you have somebody who's a secondary playmaker – and Lillard kind of he can play off the ball. He hasn't done it as much as I'd like over the course of his career. That's not his fault. You know, it's more just who is around him and what his coaches have wanted. But you can you can make that work. And so yeah, that that's an, I hadn't thought about it. And and then there are a lot of guys who I don't think are worth that kind of a pick. But I'm sure there would be interesting. You brought up you brought throughout Siakam as one. Like I don't think of Carl Anthony Towns as that kind of player at this juncture. But there is no no circumstance where I'm giving up the number three overall pick to Carl Towns. Same, but the the, the challenge with all of the like names stick and players who have had success, and so you could eventually and and 
There's also, because of the new collective bargaining agreement and some of the elements that are coming into play, I think we could see some surprising movement because teams see in a couple different directions where things are going and want to get ahead of it. And so we could see some of that. Like, I mean, the Clippers are a weird variable and all this kind of stuff. Not, Not really the draft part of it, but other things, because it's like, well, how do they want to approach the second apron and everything else like that? But yeah, I I think that you're you're on the right track, and where all of that plays out. And another key question is, I brought up how do how do these potential trade partners value these picks relative to each other? The other one is, what do teams like the Blazers and the Rockets want in return? Like, is it like a young good player? Is it somebody you know like let's say the Rockets get Harden? Is it somebody who's a little bit older who's just like the time is now? Like you re- really make a stark yeah. shift because. That changes the the decision as well, and then you could also see, and this is one of the ones that would be really fun from my perspective, having seen a you know a partial amount of these players, is a team like the Magic moving up, and these kind of like six for eleven to get to three or four trades happen every so often, and generally speaking, the team that moves down does better than the team that moves up, but there are exceptions, including the Jazz with Donovan Mitchell. And so those gambles can be really, really fascinating. Yeah, like I'll be honest, like I, number six and number eleven for number three, if Scoot Henderson is on the board, like that's not enough for me. Just genuinely, like I'm not, I'm not doing that if I'm Portland. Like it needs to be more to me. With, um, with where the board is, I think. Well, with what I know, I think I agree with you. Um, but Orlando yeah. has things they could add. Like if if that's the way it goes, and yeah. theoretically. Yep. If, and I will I will say this it would make the team like kind of hilariously big but if if Miller's the guy who falls or if they're a believer in Amen Thompson that's a really weird fun team like you could get to some some wild Orlando stuff. you mean yeah like Orlando yeah I mean yeah Scoot is the more logical one because point guard and, and all that is what they're looking for but you could you could get to some stuff there and um, yeah no i mean it's fun like if they stay at 6 and they end up with like cam whitmore like that ends up like cam whitmore next to franz wagner it, it, like next to paulo like that would be sick to me mm-hmm. like please do that like that would be incredible it would be um so we'll, we'll we'll talk about some of the players that are in place there we could talk more brief and the other kind of part of the lottery is the spurs getting number 1 presumably yeah. they're going to take victor wembanyama I originally wanted the team that won the lottery to be to be a franchise that was a little bit closer, meaning like that ideally had that lead ball handler. So, I mean, my dream was OKC, like a Shea and Wimanyama would have been amazing. But a lot of those teams ended up doing well enough during the season that their odds were low. And so be it. The Spurs, beyond all of the connections to Wembenyama with Tony playing on Tony Parker's former team and currently playing for Boris Diaw's team and and yep. you know their their history of number one bigs and Popovich being there for however long he wants to. One of the things that makes me super excited about Wembenyama on the Spurs is because their front court is so open at the moment. They are flexible enough to not only try, but eventually build around whatever makes the most sense for Wembenyama. So it is yes. not a circumstance where he's a full-time four, he's a full-time five. There, you have to match him. Like, let's say the Pistons had gotten number one. I would have enjoyed the Cade Wembenyama fit, of course. But if Troy Weaver is seeing it as, well, we need to figure out what works with Wiseman and Durin and Bagley and... 
Isaiah Stewart. Well, I mean, then you're kind of boxing Wembenyama in. But the Spurs, they're not close. They they have a lot of guys that I like, like Vassell and Keldon Johnson. But they have the time, and they notably, hopefully, have the patience to see where he goes and then work with that. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying here, and I think you're absolutely on the mark in terms of, you know, I was I was a little bit like not I was like nonplussed by San Antonio, like thinking about it originally. But the more that I think about it, the more I actually love it and think that like it really, really works. Because a like I love the Sohan and Vassell fit with him like sure. I, I think that it, it's a the, the, if i was like starting an organization for vic like th- those are two guys that I, I would love next to him i don't know if they'd be like the guys i would start with necessarily but um those archetypes of player are like what i would want that flexibility in terms of cap space in terms of their long-term salary sheet and in terms of their actual cap space this summer is actually really interesting because it allows them to either pivot into contending immediately or it allows them to be a little bit more patient. And uh, so I'll ask you this, like you've watched a little bit of Vic at this point, presumably. How close do you think he is to being like a dude that makes the playoffs year one, like almost regardless of who's around him? I haven't watched as much. So I'm saving Wembenyama for after I've watched a lot of the other guys. Now, I have seen him in person twice, but... I I think it might take it like if we're comparing Wembenyama to like Anthony Davis, I thought Davis was more NBA ready or Luca. I mean, Luca, the most accomplished European youngster to come over ever. And Luca did finish like somebody asked me if like well, I thought Wembenyama could finish top five in MVP. And I'm like, well, it has happened before. And then if you want to go deep enough, like Alvin Adams actually won it. But that's a long time ago. And so I think that it's good to be which actually I think of except for how bad the 24 draft allegedly apparently is like it taking a year or two is actually not the worst thing at all for them because you can build up the war chest a little bit. I think it's going to take a bit. How about you? I think that like if Devin Vassell takes a real leap and like stays healthy and if Jeremy Sohan takes a real leap and is like healthy and they bring in a veteran point guard, that team's probably a play in team next year. Very well could be. I mean, yeah, I mean, the West is going to be strong next year, but they'll they'll have a good foundation. And the other weird part of it for the Spurs, when you consider how much money they have, is that if they wanted to. They could put together a kind of deep and fungible roster. And what I mean by that is like they have 10 guys. You don't have like, I mean, you build it out with like not necessarily like star upside, but because you're probably that the goal would be maintaining financial flexibility in this. But like you have a role for McDermott in the rotation. And if there's a night that it's an opponent that's bad for him, then maybe he plays a little bit less or you have an injury or something else. And I, I involved in that is Wembenyama playing some four, playing some five. So you have Zach Collins and, and numerous other things. And like there are a lot of different ways they could do that. And functional depth is a great way along with coaching, to have a better regular season record than people expect and to kind of you can weather some of the storms because the fact of the matter is you're going to have them in the NBA. That's the way these things work. And so it's it's a possibility. And I think point guard is a big question. And point guard's hard because generally the guys involved have enough leverage. Like 
for example, if they're going after a free agent point guard, which is not the only possibility, those guys, the guys that become available aren't always the greatest fits, and they're probably going to want a lot of years, and there might not be on the right timeline. So, like, for example, I wouldn't love D'Angelo Russell there. Some no, other guys. God, no, D- Danny, no. I know. Don't, don't even put that in the world. Oh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. come on. But there are, you know, there are others that, that could do it. Or you do a couple of kind of rolls of the dice and you see who can who can shake out. And I mean, that's something, especially with the new salary minimum rules, that I would be really interested in as San Antonio. Like, I don't know if Orlando is the right team to keep Jonathan Isaac on his contract, but someone is. And the funny thing is that San Antonio just did this with Zach Collins. And the idea of, like, if he ends up ever coming back to be the guy that he was before, and you just have him on what would then be a reasonable contract. So you you roll those sorts of dice. So maybe high upside, low downside, and you have Wambanyama. They're not long enough contracts that it's going to really stunt your growth too significantly. I could see them go in those directions, but I, I mean, they, and if Wembenyama, especially defensively, if he can be in time or now that player, it makes it easier for San Antonio's front office to concentrate their resources. I've talked about this with Orlando on a smaller number of needs, which is a really, really good thing. Well, and to me, it's more like I, I want flexible players mm-hmm. around Victor Wembenyama. So, like to me, like. The guy that makes like a world of sense for them, given just how clean their cap sheet is, I think is Austin Reeves. Sure. Like that is a guy who can dribble past you. He can drive. He can attack. He can play make like really smart, high IQ player, like really fits with the rest of their roster. I think you can play him at the one. You can play him at the two. There's just like a lot of synergy there between him and like a Victor Wembanyama led roster. Do you like seriously, if you're San Antonio, like you probably have to come close to maxing him to make like the Lakers consider not matching him. But like, do you think about doing that? Because yeah. his max for people, sorry. Like, it's roughly you know, four. Danny. It's roughly four years, a hundred million. Roughly. Yeah. In that ballpark. I don't think you necessarily need to go that high, but if you did four years, 90, four years, 80. And for San Antonio, the cap is rising. They don't have much long-term money on your books. And he's, I think of him as a starter caliber player. So I mean, yeah, like I think I think the Lakers match 80 like for sure and like don't even think twice about it. So like I think that if if another team wants him, it probably has to be over 90, which is like a number for Austin Reeves that we never would have thought coming into the season. Right. But <laughs> I well, here, here's what here's hard. what I will say on that front until until proven otherwise. And that could happen in five weeks. I'm not going to treat the Lakers as a big spender, like a big, big, I'm talking like second apron, that kind of stuff until it happens because like they let Caruso go. They've been willing to make some cost cutting moves, not using mid-level, even with their team being as, you know, having LeBron James, one of the best players on the planet in the last years of whatever this is. It's not his prime because that's disrespectful to how great his prime was. So I'm 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 not going to say they're matching 80 for sure. They're matching anything else. Now I wouldn't be stunned if the Lakers had some sort of possibility in place of a shorter term thing and said like, hey, if, you know, we can we can line things up. But if I'm Austin Reeves, if the market is what I think it could and arguably should be, you tell them to put up or shut up. And oh, the- no question. I, I think you have to. If you're Austin Reeves, you're coming off of like 17 points, five rebounds, five assists. I, I think he shot Danny like 56 or not 56. I think he shot 46, 44, 90 in the playoffs. 
I, I don't know if he's ever going to get an opportunity to get paid again like this coming off of that. You know what I mean? It's wild considering he's arenas limited, but I wholeheartedly agree. And and even if he does, there's no certainty in that. Like this isn't a a situation like I mean, years and years ago I argued that Anthony Davis should take the qualifying offer because I was so confident that he was going to get paid. Austin Reeves isn't that guy. You know, he's he doesn't have that kind of a pedigree. He has done very well, but those sorts of players can be great or can can fall off. And I think he owes it to himself to do that, especially if if he gets even close to $20 million a year. Even a successful 23-24 campaign, there's no guarantee that that kind of an offer is out there. I expect that it would be, but there's no guarantee. So the downside to him is high, and the upside is relatively low. So yeah, I think the San Antonio would be a logical potential suitor there. I think Detroit is another potential suitor there because he can play on, he can play off the ball, he can take on different kinds of defensive assignments, and so he could mesh with their kind of... I like Austin Reeves with a fluid roster because even though he can't be the lead player, he can fit alongside almost any kind of lead player, and that's useful. And if you can get him at a reasonable salary, then it's someone you have in place. And like, I, I, I like so like you mentioned one more just like a few others like like Houston should absolutely try to do this sure right? Houston he's a perfect guard to try and help Jalen Green develop like he's a great processor of the game would really like help speed up that development Orlando could really use a guard that just like is high IQ and like continues to play like he'd be a good fit next to Markel Fultz he'd be a good fit next to Franz Wagner and Paulo Bancaro. Um, Utah should try and do mm-hmm. this for sure. Like, you know, Indiana should go for this, I think. Like, th- the problem for the Lakers is that every single team with cap space is like a younger team where Austin Reeves can both help their short term and long term needs. I, I, Danny, I, I would be more surprised if he got under 80 million than if he got maxed at this point. Wow. Just given that it's going to be a bit like, just think about the market dynamics. It has nothing to do with like me having um, any sort of whatever, like knowledge or anything. Like, I, this isn't coming from like inside information. Like, this isn't coming from like me reporting this or anything. But just like think about the market dynamics here. We're talking and like there's a real case that all of Houston, San Antonio, Utah, Detroit should make him like their priority guy, right? There also aren't that many alternatives that check enough boxes for a lot of these teams. So like, for example, like the Utah Jazz, well, it's like, well, if it's not Reeves, then who? And for a lot of these teams, the potential of burning your cap space for the moratorium and then not getting anything for it is not a disaster. It's not what you want, but it's not a disaster. And you also can't play out the game quite as long as before. It's still not where I want it to be, but they're doing that. And because of the Lakers' history and because their finances, their financial present and future to an extent, it's more plausible that you could pry Reeves away than somebody like Cam Johnson. Right. And exactly. so, like, Cam Johnson, like, you don't roll those dice because those dice are coming up snake eyes. You know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a fair roll. And right. well, could and you Cam Johnson's more expensive as well? Presumably, I, I, I would think yeah. so too. And and like so maybe some people feel about feel Grant Williams the same, but a frontcourt players are a little bit more numerous, and b Reeves he he's has he fits a little differently, and I as, and and especially with the the worst case scenario kind of part of this. You brought you brought this up, but I want to 
phrase it in a different way. A number of different teams, and I think the Jazz are the poster children here, they have a lot figured out, but they don't have their backcourt figured out. And yep. so the opportunity cost for them is lower. So for Utah, yeah, they still they still need that long-term primary ball handler that, you know, that we saw how much worse they were after they traded Conley, which not the worst thing in the world when you consider, you know, they got a better pick and everything else. They can add Reeves and then you find that other player later. Like they have a billion picks. They can do whatever else, like those sorts of situations. And Reeves game also doesn't take many teams off the board. Like, I don't think he should be Oklahoma City's target, but I also wouldn't be like flambeing Sam Presti if that's what he chose to do. Yep. And so, so you have this is why, like, I'm just like, I think this is going to get like very expensive for the it, Lakers. It, it definitely could. Um, I want to shift back to the um, this kind of ties in with the two, three, four. We talked about it kind of from the team perspective, the, some of the prospects involved. And as I said, I'm kind of partially through the scout on a lot of these different guys. And there is a lot to like. And when you think about potential, you and I, you know, we've been doing these talks a long time now, and we've often lamented the lack of viable wings. Mm-hmm. And it's thrilling to have this many players at this level who have A, high ceilings, and B, have position, like the right positional size. And so to me, one of the more compelling parts in this like preliminary scouting place where I am is it's to me so far, it's not as much about eye of the beholder in terms of the skills that these players have. It certainly matters. Instead, what I find so fun, and I was just watching Cam Whitmore today, so we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit, is it's this bet about what skills, what deficiencies are easier and harder to correct. Yep. Yep. Because none of these guys, including Scoot, are perfect. Yep. They all have different flaws. And for some guys, it's motor. For some guys, it's kind of instinct and feel. For some guys, a lot of them, it's jump shot. And as an organization, you obviously have other intel in terms of, is this kid a hard worker? Or what have they done so far? All these other things. But at a very basic evaluation level, you're not evaluating them as much as you're evaluating your own player development and the history of player development in the NBA. So I think that's a really good call. I, I do think that you are evaluating like the character of the human being first and foremost in Absolutely. all these cases. Like no no question there. Um, it, it is interesting. Like for instance, like Cam Cam Whitmore is like the prime example of this, right? So like Cam Whitmore, if you just look at the clips, like you said that you know part of your process is. Did you see like more impressive like? high-end moments from anybody other than, like, Wemby and, like, Scoot than Cam Whitmore's. There's one other guy, and we'll talk about him at length in a bit. But, yeah, there aren't many. And what I one my favorite single thing about Cam Whitmore is that he's has great physical tools, and he plays with force. He applies his athleticism. And yes. there are so many, like, we just in, talked about Brandon Ingram a little bit. It's always been the thing that bothered me about Ingram, is that he's a great athlete, wonderful physical size, doesn't apply it to a lot of his elements. Instead, he takes a lot of contested jump shots. Mm-hmm. Whitmore, he does that. Like, he'll, you know, he, he runs the four hard in transition, and even though he doesn't have necessarily the greatest skill tools he uses what he has physically to make life better on his team so to to try to he cuts to try to get easy baskets he runs the four hard in transition he competes defensively so i love all of that two things one 
I so again, I, I've mentioned that I watch clips. I don't look at anything statistically before I do. And so I have all these yeah. notes for various different players of like, I wonder if their jump shot goes in or like, I mean, and with him, it's an old thing that I go back to is his jump shot misses are bad. Like they're, they're not, yeah. oh, it, you know, like, oh, it edged around the rim. And it's like their front rim, their back rim, they're like hitting off the backboard. And so you have that. And then um, John Gavoni, I think they're his stats had it. And so like you look at it and Winmore's overall numbers in college weren't that bad. But then like in a small sample, he shot like 22% on threes in high school and shot 50% from the line. Again, in a small sample, and you're like, oh God, like, yeah. is it, yeah, is yeah. it, are, are we dealing with a small sample size theater? So you have all these things, and I brought up how I love his applied athleticism. The thing that stunned me is how bad but correctably bad his defensive film was because Whitmore has the tools. Like, the the I, I can be, will be is, like, it, it's really high for him. Like, he, you know, he has moves, moves well. I think of him more, you know, like, his straight line speed is better than his lateral, but his lateral's not horrible. It's, it's pretty solid. What was weird was... He kept being surprised by things that weren't surprising. Like yeah. you concede, like you're you're shading, you're closing out to a guy's right hand, and then you're surprised that he drives left because that's where you're not standing. And I, th- so you have these two elements. One is like you very rarely see somebody make those kinds of mistakes at a major college, even if Villanova this year wasn't what they've been in prior years. And you don't see those mistakes in part because people usually have it figured out. But my instinct is you could straighten that stuff out. Like it's it it's I think if the goal is to have the player play smart or smartish, that's easier than play teaching a guy how to play hard if they have Whit- the tools. Whitmore definitely plays hard. I'm not real worried about that. Yeah. Um so with Whitmore, throw some context in there. He he missed a good portion of the early season and like preseason. Uh, I think he missed maybe the first five games, three thumb games. In, thumb well. injury, right? Something like that with a thumb injury. And particularly, I actually think Whitmore is like quite good as an on-ball defender. Sure. Like he's disruptive as hell. He has really strong hands to like try and like get into like a guy's handle and like really disrupt them. Uh, I think he's really good in cross matches and scrambles. I think he is really good at like walling up and getting like his chest squared to the ball handler and cutting off a person's momentum because he's so strong and quick uh, through his core and then also through his feet. It's the team defense stuff that's messy. Like, sure. Yeah, you're right. Like 100%. Like the fundamentals on his closeouts are like very messy, right? Like I think that like he ends up out like too far on his front foot a little bit too often, right? And like he'll gamble a little bit here and there and like be a little bit late rotationally. But like a lot of the team defensive stuff, like I think it's worth noting that he did miss a lot of their preseason, which means he was like a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of like the team defense. And a lot of it is like attention to detail and like continuity with like some communication issues and things like that. So I think as he like gets an off season, frankly, playing and, you know, being around a better coach than what Kyle Neptune is, I think it's going to be really, really good for him at the end of the day. Uh, I think it's going to be really, really good for him defensively. The, the, the main worry, actually, I think Whitmore is going to shoot for what it's worth as well. Like, I know that the percentage this year is like 34.3 in total. Uh, made 40. He made 40% of his catch and shoot threes this year, mm-hmm. actually. The makes tend to be very pure. The misses are very, like, all over the map. You're right. 
Um, from what I gather in his pre-draft, he's really cleaned up a lot of this stuff. I don't think he's ever going to be like a movement shooter off of like a pin down or anything like that. But I do think he's going to be able to make spot threes. And I think he's also like pretty nasty with his step back game. Like he separates, he gets his feet up under him. He gathers his balance and he's like pretty slick with that stuff. Now, the, the two issues here for me are like a has like no in between game. Right. None like the connective tissue in Cam Whitmore's game is just like non-existent yeah like no no real mid-range way to score right now and then on top of it he's like like you and i and certainly on your show with nate like we talk all the time about malcolm brogdon being like he's gonna stop and he's gonna survey right like he's not just gonna he's not gonna catch and move the ball brogdon's gotten better at that over the course of his time in boston this year i think actually but like old habits die hard and you can still see that sometimes Mm -hmm. you know what i mean I do. Whitmore is like every time he catches, he's either catching and going baseline if he's on the wing and they have an empty side or he's catching and surveying and like stopping the ball and like letting the defense scramble back into position. And that processing speed, I think, is what worries me the most with him in terms of his overall upside. Look, you said that you don't really look at like the numbers when you watch it, but like I'll share them. No. And then I I do after. I, 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 I'll, yeah. I'll clarify his his assist rate is like historically low for a potential lottery wing. It, it's he averaged like 0. 0.7 assists per game this year. It, it is like really quite low. So I, I'm th- that's where I'm worried most right now. And like he'll like stop in the mid range and then like pivot around a little bit and try and like find an open angle to try and get like a little scoop shot or whatever, instead of like just getting the ball moving and like reading and reacting and seeing where the help is coming from. Th- that's the stuff that worries me most with Whitmore right now, I would say just like the overall, the overall feel and like the overall ability to like read the court on offense. It's an extremely fair criticism. And, um, and especially because of the things that can tie to that. Because if you're not a quick decision maker, then maybe maybe some of the reactions on defense are tied to that. And I brought up how some of Whitmore's flaws are easily correctable. That one can sometimes stick. And yes. it it's a it's definitely definitely a concern. I want to. And by the way, like I love Whitmore. I have him like very very high. Um, I, I am a big fan. I have him like in the tier with like um like the, I don't know about Scoop, but I certainly have him in the tier with like Brandon Miller and Amon Thompson and like potentially a Sore Thompson as well. Lots more to discuss with Sam Vecini, but first a message from FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. I think it's really cool that they have the combination now of team-specific stuff. Sure, you can do the over-unders and, and all that, but also player props. And player props can be a fun way if you think, oh, this is a great matchup for Jokic or whatever player that you can get. I mean, Jamal Murray has his ups and downs. You can do all that through FanDuel, and that's why there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and over in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering 
online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. 1-800-9-WITH-IT. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. 1-877-770-STOP. GamblingHelplineMA.org or you can call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. 1-800-522-4700 or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Let's go to Amen Thompson, and he's somebody that I have done my full <laughs> scout on, and I I vacillated more watching his film than most guys that I watch, in part yeah. because it is one of the more unusual combinations of of overall game that I've ever seen. And for those who know, I've been doing yes. draft work since 2007. Like, it's a long yes. time. And that is both a very, 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 very good thing and at times a bad thing because he, you know, the athleticism you described, I mean, before I started watching him as like a freak show athlete. Yeah, of course, that's all there. And his feel, his, as J. Kyle Mann says, passing vocabulary is stunning for a guy his age that isn't like a LeBron James level of prospect. Like he's, he's not like, you don't see this very often. He's insane. But like, I mean, there was a play I have it, I have it cap. I have it underlined and bolded in my, in my, it'll come up one night and I do him that he gets an offensive rebound and throws the best way I could describe it is a hook bounce pass. So 45 degree angle from (laughs) overhead. And I, I actually paused it and showed it to my wife because I'm like, I've only ever seen like three people ever at his age ever even think about that pass, much less make it successfully. And the ones that I'm thinking of are LeBron James, Luka Doncic, and Chris Paul. Like they're the guys who I can remember vividly doing that. Rubio probably could too. I'm not sure I remember that in his film. Like Rubio could do everything. And Two of those guys are much, much smaller than Ahmed Thompson, and the other two are ridiculous. However, his jump shot is bad, and it might not, it it would take a lot for it to be better. I don't think it's broken, broken, but especially the pull up shot is very awkward. And yeah, so, so, so let me ask you this, and there's a very specific reason I'm going to ask you this question and not anybody else. Who is the player he reminds you most of in terms of play style? Offensively? And like in terms of skills. Yeah, across the board, honestly. Hmm. He's more distinct than almost anybody. Um, because his motor is so much better than Ben Simmons's, and I, there, there are yep. things that I hated about Simmons. Um, let me think. Probably Sean Livingston. I, I think he's a, uh, like, Sean was a good athlete when he was. Oh, yeah, like, but I'm just saying in terms of the that, way he plays. Like, like, oh, I actually have another one. I forgot. I had this in my notes. Yeah. He's like if Lonzo Ball was one of the best athletes in the NBA, which so my, go ahead. My name for you is my name's Russell Westbrook. He sure. reminds me a lot of watching Russ. He so the thing that and it's funny because I remember Russ as a prospect better than almost any yeah. prospect in is that there are elements of it that I think you're right on. Like um, the the speed, like there aren't that many players who seem faster with the ball in their hands. Than, than without yes. it. And Amon Thompson is one of those guys. And he, like Westbrook, can get himself into trouble. 
the thing that and, ma- and he's like constantly pressuring as well as the other thing like and and constantly he, pressuring kind of on both ends like sometimes yes. to his own detriment and sometimes yeah, to his yes, team's detriment exactly right yes. um but what i think makes amen different is he sees the game more holistically than Westbrook does. And I always think of that, like Russell Westbrook, a deeply underappreciated passer in terms of his vision. But what Russell Westbrook, in part because like he was largely, a you know, like he was an off guard. I mean, that was the intention at UCLA and everything else. Like he, he attacks more singularly and then can pass. Whereas both, Thompson twins, they see all of those options at the same time and consider them. Now, they don't always yeah. make the right decision, but they're they're more open, like they're they're processing different in a different order of operations. But I think you're you're right on that. But the reason why I compared him to Lonzo is the idea that the speed of the decision matters too. And Lonzo, part of why I was obsessed with him, partially incorrectly, as a prospect was the idea that sometimes making a fast decision is better than making the right decision. Now, he did it. He made, Lonzo made the right decision more often than Amon does. But that idea that you lose, and it's so funny because the stark contrast with Cam Whitmore, you lose so much advantage in that time. The other wild thing in terms of timing that Amon Thompson and, and Osar to, to an extent as well have is their their passes are like stunningly fast. And I'm not yes. talking about the speed of the decision. Like they're like a jugs machine. And oh they they can but they have touch if they need to. Sure. But like they can fire that thing. Like I mean they're there. like they're not throwing arcs, they're throwing missiles. And yes. that can be a bad thing. Like there was this hilarious play, I think it was Osar who did it, who threw a pass the decision in the pass was so fast, his teammate standing in the corner just got hit in the shoulder. Like, he hadn't turned yet. And I was like, yeah. what the hell? Like, this doesn't happen. And, I mean, the the Overtime Elite film, it, the thing it reminded me of, and it was, I had talked with Stefano about this because he lives in Atlanta now, it reminds me a lot of the Chino Hills stuff that I watched um, yeah. in, in terms of just the pace and everything like that, which also makes it weird to evaluate these kids because they're just playing in a completely different environment. Than what and, we're seeing. And they're playing look like there are a few kids there that are quite good. Like Alex R is going to be coming over here to Perth next year. Izzy Almanza is uh I don't know if his if he's going somewhere or not, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um he's really talented, really potential first round pick next year. Um like there there's there are talented kids there, but the level to which the Thompsons are just like leaps and bounds ahead of these kids is is like wild. I think. Sure. And one of the, my favorite things about how fast these teams are playing, and you weirdly, you don't only see this in the ball kids, you also see it in a little bit in Inyeka Kongmu, is who played with Emachino Hills, is yep. it's the analogy, I don't know, I can't make this analogy perfectly because it's outside of my field of expertise, but the story I've heard is it's like these the younger generation that played online poker as opposed to the older generation, where the, yeah. rep, the reps, they're getting this volume of reps that just didn't exist 10 years ago that I think helps make them better decision makers. Also, a full credit, wherever it came from, whether it's the Thompson parents or mentors at any phase of their life, they're fundamentally unselfish players in a way that is so genuinely exciting because yeah, that, that'd be that'd be the parents. Yeah. I, I, um, that's great. Their, their dad is big on that. And sure. so that it's so refreshing because it can get them into trouble at times. 
I'd rather have that problem 100 times out of 100 than the tunnel vision, not, you know, like, especially because it makes it more fun to be their teammate. And at a fundamental level, basketball is about fun and having teammates and everything else like that. And so with Amon, the question for me, is, there are two that relate to each other. One is, can he develop the on-ball game, particularly with the jump shot, to be that guy? And then the second question, and this is the one that I got wrong years ago with Dante Exum, is if he can't do that, what in the world is his role? Because I think so the that, se- that's yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. And is essentially, do you think he is so good and so electric on ball? Because uh, uh, honestly, I kind of do. Like, I think he is so good and so electric on the ball that he is going to be able to be an on-ball playmaker because like it's almost like a Giannis it's not Giannis like he's not this good but like it's almost like a Giannis situation where you have to play tight on him because if you don't he is going to get downhill on you and if he gets downhill on you it's over like immediately he gobbles up space so fast so fast and also like that's that part of what makes the Thompson twins so exciting is that they're freakishly athletic and so you think about also they're i I believe they're like 19 now turning 20 relatively soon is that there's or no they're 20 now turning 21 is that a little bit older they're a little bit older that's a weird thing with this class i don't know why that is anyway um these guys who haven't you know who like brandon miller's old for his class too um yeah and cam whitmore is like super super young super young and so the idea of how you defend them. And with Thompson, it's also who do you put on them? So typically with bigs, I used to, the Paolo was a great example of this. I would say like, I liked him better in finesse matchups, like speed finesse matchups than power matchups. Like that was the advantage he was better at using. Whereas there are a lot of other guys, like there are guys who are better in power spots and everything else. I'm not sure yet with either Thompson twin, but because of what they bring to the table, I think they're going to force some of those choices. And even if yeah. he's not perfect on ball, the possibility that you have to put your best wing on them is just so juicy because like the the yeah. idea that they can do it that they like can if, kind of if you play if you play small on him, the world is just so open for him in terms of like his vision. If he can see over that primary defender, and let's be honest, like most of the time he's six foot seven, he's gonna be able to see over most guys uh that are like perimeter players and guards. Like you, you really do, I think, have to guard them a little bit bigger. Like, for instance, like the guy who I thought had the most success this year on Asar Thompson was actually Alex Sar, who's like the seven foot, you know, set a big prospect basically, who can really move his feet. Mm-hmm. But like having that size on a SAR, I thought was like really, really impactful and impressive. Makes sense. And that ties in with the parallel of like, that's the kind of thing that works on James Harden because, you know, another, yes. another guy who doesn't always get to his shot in the same way. And I also thought a lot, you know, part of what I loved about Amon's film in particular, because I, I like him a lot more as a handler and decision maker than, than a SAR is yeah. the possibility of not only like Draymond Green is the archetype, but playing him alongside another dominant player as the screener. Because yep. if you can get yep. Amen in a four on three, it's game over. It's over. Like it, it, it and that's the over. reason and that's the reason why if he's available, I mean, I'm not getting into the Amen versus Scoot stuff just yet. If you can play him with Willard and you do let's call it one <laughs> let's call it one three or 
3-1. We saw this. Denver beautifully executed this in Game 3 of their series with Jokic, who is, of course, also 7 feet tall and the greatest offensive player in the NBA. There isn't really a counter. There isn't something that you can necessarily do there. And the Thompson Twins both have the frame to actually set credible screens. We'll have to see if they actually do it, but yes. they'll have they'll have plenty of incentive too. And if you do that and they double Dame, then all you and, and he can get the ball to Amon, which he can, then you can put a lot of different kinds of talent around that and it's gonna work, including Shaden Sharp. And play finisher, breaking in from the wings. Jeremy Grant would look great in that kind of a system. A four-spacing big would work great in that system. But even a traditional big works totally fine. Or like, you know, another great question is like, okay, all of those things that you said about Damian Lillard, you know, long-term, if Shaden is who, you know, he has potential to be at least based off of the close to his season last year. Like, you can say all of those things that you just said with, like, Lillard, like, one, three ball screens with Thompson, right? You can say all of that with, like, two, three ball screens with Lillard on the weak side. All of that works the same. Yep, it does. And then on top of it, like, can you imagine, like, two, three ball screens with Sharp and Amen? Mm-hmm. Or, like, three, two ball screens? Like, where Sharp is setting screens and, like, rolling downhill? And switching, what? I mean, I I sometimes like it a little bit more with a larger position difference. Part of the 5-1 working so well for Denver is that you don't feel as comfortable switching. But, I mean, if the players involved are good enough, then you run into problems anyway. Like, that's, yeah, teams, teams like, just don't have enough good defenders. And also... Yeah, like you, you try and switch that action, like, I, I guess, go ahead. Um, because you might end up switching it, unless you have two ridiculous athlete perimeter defenders <laughs> good luck <laughs> and he, here's here's another good description of of Amen thompson as many of you know who listen to this podcast i don't use a ton of profanity i will sometimes do the talking equivalent of all caps i have That's more my job i have more profanity in all caps in Amen thompson's write-up than i do in almost any prospect i've ever scouted because like there are, there was one point where I'm just like, holy shit, he's flying by people. Like the the and some of that is you have to calibrate on the talent level and everything else like that. But just the the speed that he has when like when he's going is special. And I'm guessing it's yeah. going to be special. Like I, I I'm excited for Wimbenyama in summer league, and that there, there isn't you know there's a oh. line there's a line between that and everything else. But the testing out some of the theories of the case with the Thompson twins is in almost any other year in the last decade would be my number one by a mile and a quarter. I am so excited to see them in summer league because those games are tailor made to them. Like the level to which people are going to be excited about them coming out of summer league is real. Here's what I would ask you. It sounds like you're like me. You're higher on Amen than you are on a sore. Yes. The connective tissue is that much better. And I don't think the jump shot is that much worse. So this, this is becoming now a conversation for people where like there are people who have started to rank a sore over Amen in the public sphere, certainly. And what I will tell you from talking to NBA teams, and I've written this before and I've talked about this on my show, the it feels like people say it's like a consensus that Amen is clearly a better prospect than a sore. NBA teams are much closer on these two than people would believe based off of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like a Rotten Tomatoes score versus a 
the the, yeah. the fan score or whatever, or like a like rating something not uh, ten out of ten, nine out of ten, you know, eight out of ten, and like averaging those as opposed to just being like yes, no, mm-hmm. right? Like every public evaluator whose opinion I care about um, has Amen over a sore, but and for instance, like most NBA teams I talk to do have Amen over a sore. The Based off of the rankings, you would make it seem like, oh my God, like Amon is clearly the better prospect. NBA teams, I would say like, I'm not saying that they think that these guys is like 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 prospects or for whatever. But if we're saying that like Amon is a 10 out of 10 prospect, Asor is like a 9 or like a 9.2 or something. Like they think they're really close in terms of like prospect them. And it's... It, 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 the fact that me and other people in the public sphere have had Amon ranked ahead of a sore the whole year, I do think like belies the fact that this is close for people in the league. And like, it wouldn't surprise me. Like if one of those people, like there are quite a few people who have a sore over a man in the league. I, I don't agree, but whatever. Um, certainly entitled their opinion. And I don't think it's like an insane opinion. I, I, I don't think it's an insane opinion for sure. Um, it's, not like impossible that a sore could go over a man. I'd be surprised. I don't think it's impossible that it could happen. Preliminarily, I haven't finished my Asor scout. I would have them in different tiers, but close within those tiers. Like that's that I I and I think that the ways that I like a men better, a sore can improve. Like they're they're it's it's the where somebody is versus where they could be. And those gaps could be could be could be tightened. And the other thing that comparing those two does, as opposed to comparing them to everybody else, is that it negates the physical gifts that they have on everyone else. Yes. And so, if I this is actually a good question for you. Do you think Whitmore is a better athlete than Asor? They're different. They are. I agree. Uh, as so, I think Whit- Whitmore. The power element of his game is really nice. Like I think that yes. it, it can it that gives you a utility where whereas like the Thompson twins have burst, but they don't have like they don't have static power. They have movement power. Yes. And so when you're guarding those wings that have become so prevalent in the league, like a, a Tatum or anybody else, generally speaking, the like unbridled power athleticism is a little bit better. So as an athlete, like I think there's I, I and I think that Asar might be a better athlete, but I I would know how to incorporate Wait, Whitmore's. You think? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But I would be able to incorporate hit Whitmore's more easily into a successful basketball player. Yeah. So like straight line speed, I, straight line speed is is often is often overrated in terms of basketball. You get what I'm saying? Like you don't have to do, wind sprints don't matter as much. Yeah. And totally. those guys are good laterally, but it's it's. You know, force equals mass times acceleration. It's kind of that part of it that I like. I really like about Whitmore. Yeah, I frankly would say Whitmore, like the intersection of power and like explosiveness is very real. And honestly, like I think Whitmore is probably pretty close to them in terms of like leaping ability. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I would say I think I would take Whitmore over a sore. I think Amin is like a tier above them, though. Interesting. In terms of like body control, when you start mixing in like I think his first step is like a tier above them. I yes. think his body control and like his um, like body mechanics mechanics in the air and like his ability to like hang and adjust in midair and like 
be able to like be slithery. Like I think all of that, like his shiftiness, I think his is like way ahead of these guys in terms of like functionally using it on a basketball court. It's just that like, I also think Asar is like a top 5% athlete in the NBA. So like yep. if we're calling Amin a top 1% athlete, which I think he is right. You would agree with that? Maybe like one to two percent. I mean, they're, they're the top of the top in the NBA is preposterous. But yeah, he's you know he could be in those conversations. I think I th- I don't think of dunk contest as a great way to evaluate this. But yeah, he could win one. Yeah. I don't think that'd be a problem. Yeah, and like I also think of it in terms of like functionality. Like his shiftiness is like sick. Like he is disgustingly Ugh. shifty through his hips. Um, and well, like, and and if, is- and if those guys like develop what I love, one of my favorite things about John Morant is his like slow down change of speed. Like it's great yes. for Luca. It's a different thing when the fastest guys can do it. And I, I wouldn't be stunned at all if they have that three years from now at a different level than most of these guys do. Totally agree. Um, and again, like when we start comparing Amin to Asar as an athlete, like it does a disservice to Asar in like a real way, because like genuinely, like I, I think Amin is like pretty close to like John Morant level athletically. Like I, I think it's, I think it's pretty sick. Um, Asor is going to enter the NBA as like a top 20 to 25 athlete in the league, I think. Something like that, sure. right? No, no arguments. Yeah. And like, that's disgusting, first and foremost. It's an enormous athletic advantage on the rest of the competition. And B, which player do you think is actually a more effective basketball player right now? I'm, I'm an Amen guy there, but if Asar's jumper, like if I don't see the difference as being as stark as some people do, if I did, then that would probably narrow the margin enough that I could go Asar. So I, I do think Asar is a little bit like he's a slightly better overall functional basketball player right now, okay. in my opinion. Um, I think his like attention to detail defensively, his off ball defense, his defensive mechanics on the ball, I think are I think he's like pretty substantially better while also acknowledging that I think Amin just sheerly due to his athleticism and motor combination, like the ceiling is through the roof with him defensively as well. But like I, I think Asor's like defensive anticipation is like a little bit better. I think that his uh just like things like being in a stance more consistently, the way he fights through screens, I, I I think all that stuff is a little bit better. Um, uh, quite a bit better right now. I think Amon's like fundamentals on that end sometimes like leave me wanting a little bit. Um, I think a footwork in sequencing as a driver is pretty is probably like a bit of a level ahead of Amon's. I think that his overall touch at the rim is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Like he has a number of like creative like finishes that he can really bring out. He has a number of he doesn't quite have the hang time Amon does, but he has like some of it and it allows him to be impactful that way. Um, I think that his ability to be an off ball playmaker also is just very high level in terms of processing the game. I think he's just like a little bit more natural of a scorer and a little bit more natural as a kind of off ball playmaker like the role really fits like he was knocking down shots late in the year this year we'll see if that holds i think that his overall game right now translates a little bit better to winning basketball than almonds while acknowledging as soon as the light i think kicks on for almond it like i think that like the upside is through the roof it is. Um, we don't have a ton of time, but there are two other high-profile guys that I'm sure we we could discuss for another full hour if we had it. Uh, let's go with the guys with similar size to these to these 
gentleman we've been discussing, and that's Brandon Miller. Miller, who you have second on your board, you know, roughly 6'9", roughly 7-foot wingspan, unfortunately. Some of the top guys didn't get measured at the combine. Hopefully, we'll get better numbers, more at least more firmed up numbers in the next little bit. Yeah. The, the, those numbers sound right on Miller for what it's worth. He reminds me a lot of high school and Duke Jason Tatum, and and what I mean okay. by that is I I think that the building blocks for Miller are there, and yep. it thinking about that does that does that you have to remember how well Jason Tatum has done from that point to this one. And that isn't yeah. to say, you know, like this is a, I would say we're at probably like a 90th to 85th percentile outcome for Tatum with where things are right now. And well, he, I, I think he could get to 95th and he'd get to 95th in a second if he, you know, like if depending on where it goes from here. Um, Even as someone who had Tatum at like number two in that class and like loved Tatum and was like very clear that like I would have taken him if I was the Lakers like and paired him with like Brandon Ingram and just like let it rock moving forward. Like I, I think that what we've seen from him is like 95th to 99th percentile okay. in terms of that's, that's fair. I just think there could be theoretically. So and it's it's really like a little bit more on ball juice. Like, and he he got a lot closer. Yeah, maybe 95th is fair, especially with the yeah. inside the arc game that he's shown this year and the foul drawing yeah. and everything else. So that doesn't mean Brandon Miller's going to get there, but why he's intriguing, and I'm sure there will be people who compare him to Kevin Durant. Um, a, the size isn't there. Like, there is this funny thing that they both have a little bit of an awkward handle because they're so tall. That That is there, and a little bit of a slow handle. Like, I, Miller gets ripped sometimes. Like, ripped meaning the ball stolen from him because yep. it has a long way to go from the floor to his hand. Um, and when Miller changes ends hard, it looks good. He doesn't always do that. Um, you also like the, the defensive playmaking is intermittent with him, but you could see that, like, I mean, there were the, these plays with him where he can, he can see what's going on, but he's not really quite doing the right thing, but that's, yeah, I think he's a fine defender. Yes. I, I, he is not a liability on defense. He is, uh, a willing defender. He just isn't like a particularly anticipatory defender in my opinion. Right. And, and like, I, I'm looking at my notes, like I had it as that he has like a comfortable, but not super dynamic handle. Like, and that's that for a guy who's six foot nine, that's pretty good. Like, you know, that, that's yep. for, he, yep. he, he was, who's 20 and turns 21 in November. Like you, you take that almost every single day of the week. Um, I don't love some of his, like kind of the feel, like there weren't a ton of value added passes. Um, and I, and I want to see how, cause we were just talking about relative athleticism. I thought of Miller as more fluid than explosive, but fluidity yep. can work really well, but it is just a different thing. Yeah. Like another guy he gets compared to is Paul George. Uh, hmm. Paul George is just like on a different plane athletically than him, in my opinion. I agree. Uh, like it's it's weird to say. I think like the closest person to him is like I think Chris Middleton developed into being a better passer. But like that's that's more of what I see from him athletically is like Chris Middleton mm-hmm. level athleticism handle kind of that stuff. I think Middleton's developed a little bit more of a crafty bag, but Middleton has a decade on Miller at this point, And I would assume Miller will continue to develop that moving forward. Um, you'll occasionally get Brandon Ingram again. He's just nowhere near as long as Brandon Ingram, no. in my opinion. Um, the thing that you probably, how much did you see Miller in high school? Have you watched any of him yet? Miller high school film? Yeah. No, I, I generally don't have, if, if, if I should, then maybe I'll watch a little bit, but, um, so it, 
it's interesting insofar as obviously, you know, you know, the Alabama scheme, you know, Alabama under Nate Oates is like threes and shots at the rim. That's what they're trying to do. That's what their goals are. That's what their entire mentality is. And coming into college, Miller was much more of like a mid-range guy. Hmm. Like he was considered like a lot more of like a mid-range kind of gunner that had potential to extend it out to three. The the reason that, so for instance, like I, I had Brandon Miller, I think at like five on my preseason board because I got told that, oh no, like he can just straight up shoot now and he's like, he looks like absolutely sick right now. Um, And I was like, oh, okay, then yeah, this is going to go well for him. And lo and behold, like first team All-American, you know, went way better than what I could have anticipated that he's yeah. like, in a conversation with Scoot. And like 38% Um, on about eight threes a game. Like that is, that is great volume and success overall. Yeah, totally. So it's interesting to watch him play in the mid range because I would imagine that like one concern you have about him is like the low release point. Yes. Right. So if you watch him, if you watch like all of his mid range shots at Alabama, you'll see this. But if you also like watch him going back, he actually is one of those guys that like can elevate the release point above his head. Hmm and like shoot over the top of guys like he can change the release point depending on the situation and i think like that is maybe the most intriguing part of him like jabari smith is another guy he's gotten compared to jabari smith is not quite that functional in terms of like the jump shot jabari smith is like an incredible shooter when his feet are set jabari is like i still think jabari is going to be great and i think jabari is going to be able to shoot over the top of guys from the mid-range at some point but like he doesn't have like shot versatility in that way. Brandon Miller like actually has some real shot versatility. I think even beyond kind of what he showed this year. So I, I would say like it is worthwhile for you to go back and like watch some of that high school tape and like go through and like watch all of his mid range shots this year. It, it is genuinely like really interesting, instructive film in some ways. Nice. I'll try to check it out. Last guy, which is stunning that we haven't gone this long without talking about him, is Scoot. Do you want to give the like 30-second sales pitch for Scoot Henderson? And then we'll start talking about him. So Scoot is, to me, like a hyper competitor and a hyper, you know, explosive, great first step, you know, real finisher at the basket, great length, great hang time, can change the angles at guys at the rim at a really high level. I think he's a terrific passer, terrific playmaker, terrific um you know, uh, overall point guard that sees all the angles really has good vision. And then, uh, you know, more, more than anything right now, like he definitely has a tendency to settle in the mid range as opposed to trying to knock down shots from three. But I think that I would kind of rather have him be like comfortable settling in the mid range at this stage of his development, as opposed to like always driving to the rim. And, And I think I have some contextual thoughts on that as well in terms of him. But I I would be interested to see what you thought of the scoop tape this year, because I I think on some level, like there are underwhelming aspects to it. There are scoop because I had seen him in person a couple of years ago, his first year on the Julie night. I actually went back and split the tape between this year and last year. He also dealt with a bone bruise in his right knee a lot of this year. So I I wondered if the sample was weird and it, it does seem like it was. And so for Henderson, one of the things that drove me crazy with his film is that when he pushes hard, especially offensively in transition, it looks wonderful. Like he yep. he he has the athleticism, it does that. He doesn't do it often enough. Like it, it's the the idea like 
it might be there are a lot of different factors i've like in terms of why that could be the case especially as i mentioned dealing with the bone bruise in his knee but it was even more it was less present but still present in the film from from the prior year so that's one that's one element of it uh, um but like so the this is going to be a very weird comparison because i'm not comparing them as players i'm just comparing the thought process i went through with them as prospects yeah i thought a lot about evan mobley because Evan Mobley, it, the idea was like you see everything there, and it's just a question of how it all. Like, can he can he do the things that he's showing the signs of? And so for Scoot Henderson, he has very good positional size. I actually think he could be a multi-position, probably just the one and the two, but a multi-position defender, which is extremely valuable for a point guard because I don't know. We'll just have to see how good he is point of attack. Um, so that's that's really good. And like I talked about how when he pushes in transition, it looks great. And there, there was a game. It was the uh, it wasn't the Memphis Hustle game. There was a different one that I was watching. Um, where no, it was the Memphis Hustle game. Where like when he's confident in the mid ranger and it's going, it's very hard to defend. Like he's he's a fast dude. He gets to it. He's the balance on his jump shot off the dribble can be very good. Yeah. I I want to watch more. I have a little bit more to do on Scoot. I didn't I wasn't as effusive about his vision and his feel as you were, but I'm open to the possibility that seeing more will get me there. Yeah. Um and so you have you have those elements and then I also was disappointed in his defensive film. Again, young kid, not going to freak out too much about it, but like gave up yeah. a lot of clean drives with minimal resistance. And you're just like, like you're you're a, like you're a talented athlete. Like you 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 get in these guys and you're you're playing against pros, but like you're as physically talented, if not more, than they are. And so with him, you know, so like with Mobley, it's it it's sort of like like Scoot's defense in some ways is like Mobley's offense, where it's like. Could he be a he could absolutely be a good defender, if not even like a great defender, not, you know, like Drew Holiday level, but, you know, like a guy that you're that you're totally living with, like not not even like getting by, but like is good. But he's not doing that right now. And so I'm a so, little, so the settling stuff does not bother you as much as it bothers other people. The settling offensively. Yeah. Oh, no, it does. It bothers me a lot, okay. but it's not. I don't think it's definitive. It's what he's doing now. I don't know that it's what he's doing forever. Yeah. So that's a, that's also my take on it. Th- this is a kid where like we just need to be real about this. Like the G League Ignite program like does not care about like wins and losses. Correct. Like they're not worried about like if they win games or not. And like on a game to game basis, they don't go in and try and lose or anything. They're not tanking. Right. But like it's not their priority to win games. The priority is to win or the priority is to like win a draft spot, basically. To and, like, d- yeah. To, to show off and develop their guys. Kids. So when you watch Scoot, he was basically preordained to be the number two pick this year, like no matter what he did. And he was still even the number two overall pick, even after game one of that, you know, Metropolitan series, where I think people forget this because, you know, when Benyama, you know, averaged like 37 in those two games or whatever. But like Scoot had like 29, 10 and nine in that game. And like his team won. And like, honestly, if you go back and you watch that, like if you take away the the novelty of what you're watching with Vic, Scoot like kind of outplayed him a little bit. That's not to say he's a better prospect than Wembenyama. He's not. He's not in the same tier as Vic. 
And frankly, like the second game of Victor Wembanyama was like even sicker and it was gross. But like Scoot was absolutely sick in that game. And then didn't the bone bruise happen right after those two games or shortly after? It happened shortly after that. He also got drilled in the face at one point this year. And like, I forget, like, I don't remember who's like a slight nose, like a nasal fracture or something like that. He had something like that come up. He had like another minor injury come up, like all minor stuff, not um, not like things that you would be worried about on a scouting report. You note them on a scouting report, but like you're not going to flag them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that basically he was still the number two overall pick even after dominating Victor Wembanyama, not dominating Vic, but like w- winning that game and holding his own at bare minimum. 92. Yeah. yeah. Not dominating Vic, but dominating Metropolitan's 92. Sure. I think is a fair way to put it. Um, well, I'll also know like two overall pick like coming into the year, right? Like and coming out of that and everything. You throw in the injuries, you throw in like everything that comes with being Scoot is like a hyper competitor when you talk to people around that program. Like he is like a like this dude is like a real like like real dude that like competes and like plays hard all the time and trains hard all the time. Like those dudes are like, he is a different kind of dude in that regard. And I kind of think he was like a competitor who wasn't competing for anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there was nothing for him to, there was nothing for him to gain. There was only stuff for him to lose by like continuing to get hurt and like continuing to put his body at risk and like continuing to drive into traffic and like get drilled every time. And like, I don't know. I think a lot of the settling stuff is like, A, he had the bone bruise, so like he didn't have like probably as much juice as what he's had. But B, also like didn't have the necessity to do it. You know what I mean? I do. And one other thing I'll throw out there. So one of the games I watched for Henderson was the, uh, they played the Memphis Hustle, who actually had a really fun G League team at the time because they started Kenneth Lofton Jr., who had a yeah. huge game, Jake LaRavia, and Zaire Williams who Zaire was the primary defender, not the exclusive one, but the primary defender on Scoot that game, which is like, I mean, I was a big fan of Zaire after his rookie year. And Scoot drilled four mid-rangers confidently over Zaire, who's a big guy. He's like six 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 with the big wingspan-ish. No, he's, he's six, like eight. six nine, six ten yep. now. He's big dude. And and you're just like, well, damn. Like, you know, if you if you could do that more more often, like it, it, there were some moments where like, you could again, you like you could see the pitch. Like the, the pitch was there. And I'm I'm really interested. I haven't finished my my Scoot Henderson film yet. But yeah, this is this is a fascinating so, so for, class. for what it's worth, Zaire coming into the draft was six nine seven five in twos. <laughs> Uh, and for what it's worth, I think I've seen reports that he might've grown a little bit since then. Okay. Um, Even more impressive then. So like enormous dude. So yeah, this is a fun class. Um, I know we, we've used as much of your time as I can. I will thank you so much for taking the time. No, my no, friend. no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. Hold on. I still have one more question for of you. Of course. Because this is... You're, this you're, is you're the one with the time constraints. So so if no, you have a question, let's ask it. No, this is now like... this is We're past time constraints. I'm in. Um, how would you rank these guys right now? <laughs> ranking. This is, this is your preliminary ranking. It is. It is preliminary. So... I think so. Preliminarily, I have a tier two of three gentlemen, in, and I'm not going to say their order first. I'm just going to say who the three are: Scoot, Miller, and Thompson. Um, yep. I think that in it's not as much about the floor as it is the ceiling. Where I could see yep. all of those guys being 
either the best player on a really good team or like an insanely good number two on a really good team. You know, sort of yep. in the line of where, I mean, we'll see where Jason Tatum's career ends up, but like, you know, like where, where though that is a reasonable outcome. I don't see either one of them as like a no doubter or hall of famer, you know, like we're not, we're not talking that there's that that's, that's why they're not tier one. But so, so they're, they're all there. And I pre- preliminarily have a SAR in a, in a tier below, but not like a huge drop. This is more like a small drop. Part of why I'm you, so excited about you have this. Like a, you have a SAR and Whitmore together. In Presumably. Way. I'm not a hundred percent. I think so. I, I have to still, I still have to work through some of that, but a SAR is definitely there. Whitmore probably. I need to watch another game of film. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I feel, and it's so funny because his EV might be lower, like the, of the two players I'm going to talk about. The thing yeah. of those three that I feel most confident about, and you know I'm a feel guy, is Amen Thompson over Brandon Miller, which is so funny yep. because it's not on most boards. Because the idea is Miller fits in more places, but it takes so much for a player where he is to become the oh shit guy. Like that's... It's the most underappreciated, as weird as it is, in some ways, the most underappreciated thing in the league is for how hard it is to be, to go from being a non-LeBron to being the great, the best player on a great team. Like, it's so, so, so hard. And you need these unbelievable physical gifts, and you also need unbelievable player development and everything else. If I had to roll those dice, I think that Amen has the tools to do it. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go upside. I'm going to go the guy who could be that player, especially because of the feel and the motor and the mentality, those sorts of elements. That is not to say that I'm low on Brandon Miller in the slightest. Yeah, you have him, you have him in the second tier. I'm like in the same tier. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if Miller goes over him in. Scoot, preliminarily, I have... Either below both of them or between Amen and Miller, I need to watch again more Scoot film. It's it's more about how I contextualize that motor. If I believe that Scoot Henderson will play significantly harder, and that's the only real difference between what he did in the G League night and what he does in the pros, he'll be ahead of Miller for me. Maybe ahead, and then if there's another step that I see in that film, he could definitely. And this is why they're in the same tier. Be over Amen. Um, it's. The thing that concerned me in the film, the reason that I think I'm going to end up with Scoot third, it like preliminarily, is because I don't see the passing vision in the same way that you do right now, and yeah. that's so important. Like, I there were times where I wrote down like Drew Holiday on offense, and that's a little bit unfair, but like I thought he got tu- a little bit too too tunnely at times, tunnel vision and everything else like that, but. I, I'm open to the possibility, especially watching some different film on Henderson, to being like, okay, that's too narrow, or to just being like, I'm going to have him too low, and then I'm going to watch him live, whether it's in in the summer league or preseason or the early NBA season, and be like, he has assuaged my concerns. Yeah, like, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. And that's a part of why I think I'll end up with Henderson over Miller, is that the things that he does wrong— are I could be wrong on, or they could be, or or they could be made right, and that's one of my favorite things about a prospect. Um, the 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 those those sorts of kind of correctable flaws or not flaws that don't exist. Um, Luca is another really interesting example of a guy like that, where it's like I had a couple of little qualms, and then I watched you know watched him play in summer league and that rookie year, like oh no no those aren't really things. Okay, cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just, he's just a stud. That's just the way these things are. And so that's so preliminarily all same tier, Amen, Scoot, Miller, 
still plenty of wiggle to get in there. And I know your last board had it Scoot Miller Thompson, which again, they're all the same tier. Close call. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's how I have it too. It's, I also have Whitmore in that tier. Okay. Because I have gotten really, really, really good feedback on his jumper. Good. Um, and like, yeah, I, I've gotten quite good feedback on the jumper, and I thought the jumper was basically okay um, throughout oh. the course of the year and thought it would be fine. So I have one more very quick question for you because I was just thinking yes. about this. I didn't want to put – I'm not going to put myself on the record yet on this, but I'll put you briefly. Who did you Please. have number one last year, and would you put all four of these guys over that player as prospects? I had – yeah, oh, that's a great question. I had Chet at number one last year. Um I would definitely put... Uh, While you think about it, preliminarily, I think I would. And I had Paolo number one. I think my answer is also yes. I think that, like, it's so weird. Because, like, I think the midpoint of Paul, Like, I think Paulo's like, expected value is probably higher than, like, Brandon Miller's. And I, I had Paulo at three, but, like, it was because I misevaluated Jabari Smith and, like... Also, because I thought, like, if I'm taking it number one, I want the guy with the highest upside. And I think Chet Holmgren has the highest upside on winning. But, like, I thought Paulo's, like, midpoint was probably a little bit higher than Chet's midpoint, like the expected value. I think Paulo's midpoint is probably higher than Brandon Miller's. Actually, yeah, but, like, hmm. It's fun. I would definitely answer I have Scoot and Vic in a different spot than these guys. But, like, huh. They're in the same – it's all the same tier for me. Sure. For sure. Completely fair. Yeah. And, and like for what it's worth, like I'm trying to decide right now uh, to t- put people behind the you know, curtain or whatever. I'm like trying to decide like do I just put Vic in like his own tier in the draft guide? Like legitimately like this is not a player I have ever seen before and like likely will never – you know, I probably will see again. But like this is – this is not the same tier as even Cade Cunningham, who I think both you and I were like insanely high on mm-hmm. uh, in that year. And like we both loved, like we were both insanely high on Zion Williamson. Like th- this is not the same tier as Zion Williamson. This is a different dude. Like putting putting Vic in the same tier as Scoot is like, it, it just does not seem correct to me. Yeah, I haven't gotten to the film yet. I don't know if we'll end up talking about it or if it'll be Nate and I. To, from what I've seen so far... The question is not, is he in his own tier? It's who is in his tier historically as prospects. And that's great. (laughs) To to me, it's like, yeah, like it's it's LeBron. I don't think AD is in his tier as a prospect. I really. Wow. Again, I I still haven't watched the film film. I wouldn't be stunned if I agreed with you. Yeah. Like I I went through and did this project where I'm doing it kind of right now, like where I had all of the guys ranked in terms of I ranked all of the one and done prospects in this era. And when I did that, like five years ago or whatever, I had Greg Oden at number one and I had Durant at number two and I had AD at three. I just think that literally both of the highest end prospects happen to come through the same draft. Um, I think that, yeah, I think Vic is a better prospect than anyone since LeBron by like a pretty real margin. It'll be a lot of fun. Thank you so much, my friend. Of course. This is great. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely.
Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. He does such good college basketball, NBA draft work, big boards, Intel, kind of melds a lot of these different things together. It's part of why not only is he one of my favorite reads, but he's, of course, one of my favorite guests as well. You can and should also listen to the Game Theory podcast if you want to. You can also give it a um, a subscribe on YouTube. He's doing that there, which... When I go on, I don't know. It's like, I don't love doing visual podcasts, but it's great. And his content is phenomenal, of course. So I would highly recommend that. It does more NBA work there. I have him on for draft stuff, um, but he, of course, is a very knowledgeable NBA analyst as well. And you can also follow him if you don't already at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download Real GM Radio in whatever podcast player you use. And if it's not somewhere that you like, let me know and I'll pass it to the people who are higher up in the food chain than I am. And we can try to figure that out. It's never going to come out on a specific day of the week, my availability, my guest's availability. So you can't get in a habit. So subscribing and downloading, it'll just pop into your player when it's ready. You can also help other people find the show. That can be social media, word of mouth. That can be leaving a rating and review in the podcast player. Really, however you help people find the show, either Real GM Radio more broadly or a specific episode. Like, hey, this one's really good. It's somebody I like, whatever. That all It all helps. Even though this podcast has been on the air for a long time, there are still people who find it, and I deeply appreciate that. The most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. You get that no sweat first bet of up to $1,000, which is very, very cool. Love having them on board. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, are going strong. Already started our off-season work, including kind of a bigger picture free agency preview and our team-by-team ones. I think we're like, I don't know, six, seven teams through the mix starting draft work very soon, as you could guess by the conversation that Sam and I had. And also Nate and I are doing playback broadcasts of most games. It's a little bit harder for American fans right now because playback's working through a deal with the NBA, but international, you're, you should be good to go. You can always come in, check it. Well, we'll tweet it out during it and you can, other people can help you sync up and everything like that. And we we're doing the time and score more often now to make it easier for people. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I actually spent a lot of Wednesday working on a piece that I'm not done with, so I would guess it'll come out next week based on my process and editorial, um, working through a, a different concept that I've ever done before, um, but I, I'm enjoying it so far. And then I'll, of course, have other stuff on the way as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I don't always reply. I try, but I'm not the greatest at that, especially, you know, having a new kid and everything else like that. So that's always been my policy, though. So it's it's feedback more than anything else. It's not starting a conversation because, generally speaking, those conversations can be had elsewhere. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Take care and make it a great day.